a message from Caitlin on the lot, who's obviously watching the live stream, about Dan. She said, I'm like, get a text from Caitlin, like, this is like. And then I'm like. All right, good morning. I just had a text from someone on the live stream and I thought they were in the building and it just weirded me out to have someone like ask, yeah. Um, my name's Mike and uh, if you haven't met me before and I'm going to be reading the Bible this morning. So um, if you want to open up Galatians, uh, we're, we're picking up in chapter 1 and I'm reading through to chapter uh, 2 verses 10. So starting in verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and to Sicilia, and I, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, are only heard, they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up to, again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. Meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I was presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of the fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they, uh, and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along.
Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, good day, everyone. Great to be here with you this morning. And uh, like James said, welcome. Uh, welcome, particularly if you're a guest who's joining us uh, for Mother's Day. Welcome if you're joining us on the live stream and you haven't been able to be here in person. Uh, I'm Lachlan. I look after the congregation here. And uh, like James said, uh, great to have you along today. Uh, Mother's Day can be a really mixed day. Uh, it can be a day of joy uh, or sadness, perhaps a mix of the two. Um, but it's really good that we can gather together whatever uh, emotions we're feeling this morning, uh, looking at God's word together. Um, many of us probably have phrases that we can remember our, you know, our mothers repeating to us a lot. Um, those of us who are parents probably have found ourselves now in the position of repeating foundational messages to our children a lot. Uh, no balls in the house. Uh, you need to get up early to catch the train or stop antagonizing your sister. Um, after I moved out of home, I learned the patience of my mother. Not that I learned to have my mother's patience, I just learned how patient she was with me. Uh, one thing that I learned is that when someone is telling me one of these messages, uh, you know, something that I kind of disagree with or think I already know, uh, I'm just prone to an involuntary eye roll. You may have already noticed that I do it. But my mother was very patient with me because... Uh, she, she kept delivering these messages to me and she never once called me out on this eye roll. So, you know, there you go. Uh, my mother was patient and one of the things that she did was to continue to deliver uh, these foundational messages, um, even though I might have either disagreed with them or thought I already knew them. Uh, and those are the two kind of broad categories with those kind of comments that you get. Uh, you know, either they can both elicit an eye roll, uh, but sometimes it might be, Look, I just disagree with the premise. I think I should be allowed to have balls in the house, so I'm not going to listen, at least, you know, not for more than 30 seconds. Um, or you're just telling me something I already know. I know I need to get up early and catching the train, uh, so I'm just not going to listen to you because I know it's true. I don't disagree with you. That's not where my problem lies. Uh, I disagree. I think those are the two broad categories. And I think that Paul's big point today in the passage that Mike just read for us is kind of like one of those things that, you know, one of your parents might have said or that you find yourself saying to uh, your kids now. Uh, it's one big idea, it's a simple idea, but it's a message that's actually pretty easy to tune out. Uh, so as we look at this next part of Galatians together, I think it's going to be easy to tune out and say either, uh, I completely disagree with the premise, I'm not going to listen, or, yeah, Duh, you're just telling me something I already know, so I'm kind of going to tune out and not listen. Uh, and here's the point. Here's the point that Paul is going to make that I think is easy for us to tune out. The gospel is God's gospel. It's not a human gospel. It's God's gospel. We see that there in verse 11 to 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it from Revelation by revelation from Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's gospel. It's not a human gospel. It's God's gospel. And everything else that Paul is saying in uh, the passage that we just heard read is going to prove that point. And so if you're here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think there's a good chance that you might say something like, well, I don't believe in God, um, or at least I'm not convinced that the God of the Bible is God, so why would I care if this gospel is God's gospel? Uh, and if you are a Christian, it's kind of a... Yeah, yeah, it's God's gospel, I know, okay. But I think tuning out would be a mistake. 
Uh, Now, if you're not a Christian, Paul's argument might not be tailor-made to persuade you uh, that it is God's gospel. I'm not going to pretend it is. But it does actually raise incidental evidence that has to be accounted for if you want to reasonably walk away from the claims of Christianity. Uh, And if you are a Christian, as we consider what it means that this is God's gospel and the impact it had on Paul and others of his day, I think it challenges us to consider whether we really do believe that Paul's gospel is God's gospel. Or is it just something we pay lip service to? Um, Now, just to quickly catch you up, in case you're joining us today for the first time or you missed last week, uh, we're in a series on the book of Galatians. It's a letter that Paul wrote uh, to a group of fledgling churches in the Roman province of Galatia. There's a map that should appear on the screen. So it's kind of in modern-day Turkey, that dark blue splodge in the middle there. Uh, That was the Roman province of Galatia, and Paul is writing to churches there. And he's writing to them because they're at risk of abandoning the gospel. Paul had told them the gospel, the message of God's undeserved kindness towards humans, the message that God sent Jesus to die in our place, that we could be saved and have eternal life with God. But there was a problem. Some people had snuck into these churches and were presenting them with a different gospel. They seemed to be saying something like, Paul wasn't giving you the whole picture. He was just trying to win converts, get numbers up. It's great that you want to trust Jesus, But that's not enough. Uh, You also need to follow Old Testament laws like our Jewish dietary laws. Men need to be circumcised. There are things that you need to do on top of trusting Jesus to really be one of God's people. And part of their uh, strategy was to attack Paul's credentials as they attacked his message. So is the real gospel Paul's gospel? Well, Paul's big point is, It is. It's God's gospel. It's not a human invention. And he does it, uh, we're going to see, with two big points. There's some initial evidence there in chapter 1, and then Paul's gospel field test in chapter 2, before we conclude and think about some implications for us today. So starting with the initial evidence there, uh, verses um, 13 to 17 of chapter 1, the first piece of evidence that Paul puts forward to prove that the gospel is God's gospel and not man's gospel is himself. Paul is the ultimate example of the difference that the gospel makes before, uh, uh, that the gospel makes. Uh, And we see what he was like before, we see the catalyst, and we see what he was like afterwards. So first, what was Paul like beforehand? Verse 13, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people, And I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul, he was a Jew. He was a zealous, orthodox Jew. And one of the things that was essential to the Jewish faith of the day was that they were looking forward to the coming of the Christ, God's chosen king who would lead God's people into a glorious new age. And that put him on a collision course with this new sect of people who claimed that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus couldn't have been the Christ because he'd been crucified. Uh, Clearly, he was under God's curse, and this blasphemous sect was dishonouring God's name, leading people astray, saying Jesus is the Christ. So Paul, in his zeal, was trying to destroy the church. 
And on top of that, Paul was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. Paul was the golden boy, the one who everyone was looking to as the next superstar. He was pegged as maybe the next Donald Bradman or Roy Cazaley or the next Emma McKeon. Everyone could see that Paul was on a great trajectory for the future based on the runs he already had on the board. Paul had every reason to continue on the path that he was on, but something happened. Some catalyst caused Paul to do a complete U-turn and flip these two on their heads. Verse 15, When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God, in his grace, called Paul. God revealed to him that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, and Paul had it completely backwards. Something has to count for Paul's dramatic change. I mean, for people in the Mediterranean during the first century, the facts, the details, the background, it could be easily confirmed. Paul was a zealous Jew, a rising star who was persecuting the church and overnight became the most outspoken advocate of this way. And Paul says the thing that explains his turnaround is the gospel. The news that Jesus, the one who was crucified, was in fact God's king over everyone, everything. Paul's achievements in terms of his Jewish credentials, they paled into the background. And Paul's zeal was completely misdirected. In fact, you know, he should have been found guilty of treason against God's king. The only thing that allowed Paul to become one of God's people is God's grace, God's undeserved kindness. We heard last week that the group of agitators that were visiting these churches in Galatia were teaching a different gospel, that following Jesus wasn't enough, and that people actually had to become more Jewish. They had to eat Jewish foods, follow the festivals. Uh, They had to get circumcised for the men. But one of the great benefits of Paul being the one that God sent to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world, is that Paul could say, I've climbed that ladder of Jewish good works, and it is a dead end. It had nothing to do with my status before God or my salvation. And after God called him, his life was completely different. The end of verse 16 there, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Uh, Paul starting to set up this next piece of evidence that we'll look at, but this time here where he, he went off, we know from the book of Acts that he arrived in Damascus And he immediately started to preach the gospel. He started to preach that Jesus was the Christ. God's uh, gospel turned Paul's life upside down, or, or perhaps we should say turned it the right way up. The things that Paul had prized were trivialized, and the message he persecuted, he now proclaimed. The gospel Paul preached is God's gospel and not a human creation, because God used it to turn Paul's life right way up. But there's another piece of evidence that Paul holds out for the Galatians here. The gospel he preaches is God's gospel because it is both independent of and the authentic gospel. We'll just start again there from verse 16. Paul says, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. 
I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Paul is clear. The gospel that he preaches, it is independent of the other apostles who were in Jerusalem. You know, if we are having an issue uh, and we want someone to help, uh, to help bring the most up-to-date research to bear on the situation, we might hire a consultant. And when Paul uses the word consulting there, he means it in that same professional sense, in the original language that has that specific professional uh, idea of getting knowledge from an expert. But Paul explicitly did not go to the experts, the people who were apostles before him in Jerusalem. Once Paul received the gospel and was told to preach it, he didn't need to have it confirmed by a higher authority. He'd already received it from the highest authority, the risen Lord Jesus. And in fact, it wasn't until three years after his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road that Paul did go to Jerusalem to meet with Peter. And he also happened to see James. But even then, it wasn't to receive instructions from superiors. It was merely to meet to make Peter's acquaintance. The name Cephas and Peter, it's the same name, just, you know, one's in Greek, one's in Aramaic. It was merely to make their acquaintance. For three years at this point, Paul has been preaching the gospel that God had given him. And in this meeting, there's no suggestion that there was any difference in the gospel preached by Paul and the gospel preached by Peter. In fact, the only response we hear of, verse 22, was that while Paul was personally unknown to the churches of Judea in Christ, the only they only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. The only response we hear from the Jewish churches is that they praised God because Paul had done this complete 180. Once again, the evidence is that the gospel Paul preached is God's gospel and not man's gospel because he received it independently from the Jerusalem apostles and it was the authentic gospel message. It wasn't a cheap knockoff that Paul had taken things out of or added things to. It was the same thing. And even if you're sceptical about the Christian message, it's a piece of evidence that needs to be considered. You know, how did Paul, who was never a follower of Jesus, who never studied under the Jerusalem apostles or the other early Christians, how did he so suddenly come to preach the exact same message? the group of agitators that were visiting the Galatian churches, they'd been teaching a different gospel. And they seemed to be claiming that Paul's gospel was inauthentic, that Paul did not teach the gospel that Jesus taught or his disciples taught. Paul's gospel, they said, was deficient. But Paul says, no, the gospel I preached was received independently and it is the same. And the only response that the Jewish churches had was that they praised God because Paul had turned and was now preaching the faith that they had. We've heard Paul's initial evidence, but what about testing it out in the field? It's nice to kind of put these theories out there, but how does it hold up when there's actually an issue that needs to be worked through? It's the final part of Paul's defence we're considering this morning, and that's this private meeting that happens in Jerusalem, 14 years after encountering Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul did meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem to discuss the gospel. Uh, and as we heard that passage read, you know, you might have gone, well, did Paul finally crack? Did he, did he finally lose confidence that the message he was preaching was the authentic gospel? Did he really need to check in with the, the real apostles to make sure that it was the same, that he hadn't lost it or missed something? 
Well, I don't think so. I mean, given how emphatic he's been about the fact that his gospel is independent and he didn't need their approval, it would be strange now if he flips that decision. No, Paul gives two reasons why he now goes to Jerusalem. Firstly, he says it was because of a revelation from God. The reason he went up now was because God told him to. But second, to ensure he wasn't running in vain. It's not that Paul was worried his gospel was wrong, but rather that there would actually be ramifications for the Christians that he had seen converted if the Jerusalem church was seen to be preaching a different gospel. The gospel Paul preached was still undoubtedly the gospel, but if the Jerusalem apostles were to send out a letter that made it look like there was a different gospel to the one Paul preached, well, it would be incredibly disruptive, undoing the good work that had been done by God through Paul, inadvertently leaving, leading Christians to believe a false gospel, one that could not save them. So in the meeting, the gospel was put to the test. And we've all had a frequent and recent experience of waiting for test results to come back, uh, and the impact that that might have on our freedom to you know, leave the house. Uh, and so Paul, Barnabas and Titus are doing a similar thing. They go up to Jerusalem to test the freedom that they have in Christ. And just like doing a rat, you want to see one test come back negative and one test come back positive, which is what we have here. Verse 3, the gospel is put to the test. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The test results are in. The bit we want negative, it's negative. Titus was not forced to be circumcised. Circumcision was one of those key physical expressions of being one of God's people in the Old Testament. And the agitators in the Galatian churches that Paul is writing to, they'd raised the question of the place of Old Testament laws, like circumcision, saying they were essential to really be a follower of Jesus. But in this meeting, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And it's not because he flew under the radar. It's not that they snuck him in and kind of hoped that no one would ask the question. No, false believers, people who claimed to be followers of Jesus, they managed to get into this meeting and they forced the issue. The issue was raised, and Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. He was not forced to adapt these Jewish cultural practices. Paul and Titus stood their ground in order to ensure there was a clear precedent, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the Gentile Christians. The test we wanted, negative, negative. But what about the control? We know the control needs to be positive to ensure it's not a false negative. Well, the good news is, the result we want to be positive is positive as well. Verse six, uh, from verse six going on, uh, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, they confirm that Paul's gospel was their gospel. In fact, notice four times Paul says that it's the same gospel in slightly different ways to make it absolutely clear. The end of verse six, they added nothing to my message. Verse seven, on the contrary, they recognized I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. That's two. Verse eight, who, uh, for God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's three. And then verse nine, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. Four times, four times we see that everyone agrees the gospel they preach 
is the same. I mean, when you think about that, you've got two groups of people independent from each other, both claiming to hold the gospel that God has given them that cannot be changed with over 14 years of preaching the gospel in their own spheres, facing their own issues, one of them being a rank outsider from the original group, insisting on the independence of the messages, the fact that they could still all get together and agree that they are preaching the same gospel. It's unbelievable. I don't know if you've been around religious people very long, but, you know, when you get two leaders in a room, uh, that sort of agreement and coherence is, is just almost unfathomable unless, unless it's God's gospel. The only thing they ask Paul and Barnabas to do in verse 10 is to continue to remember the poor, which is the very thing Paul was eager to do anyway. You know, rather focusing on things like ceremonies or customs, you know, what foods are eaten and whether or not someone is circumcised, Paul and the Jerusalem apostles underline care for the poor. I think it's something that points to actually having a heart like God's. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God condemned Israel and Judah for focusing on externals like ceremonies and singing and sacrifices when their hearts weren't actually interested in loving God and his ways. And caring for the poor, the weak and the vulnerable, that was a particular expression of someone who genuinely loves and trusts God, who genuinely follows him. There is a reminder here of the importance of genuine expression of faith in God. But that'll get unpacked a bit more later in the letter. And so this field test, it confirms Paul's gospel is God's gospel. It's not a human creation. For the Galatian Christians, it meant that distancing themselves from Paul and the gospel he preached was a terrible mistake. And you know, the same is true for us today. The idea that Paul's gospel is God's gospel, it might not sound controversial, especially as we sit here at church this morning, but it is still a common idea that we hear. The argument that, well, Jesus was a great teacher, that Paul twisted what Jesus taught into something disturbing, it still a line that gets pushed out today, though it flies in the face of the testimony of the early and original sources, both on the side of Paul and on the side of the other apostles. But even within our churches, there is still a temptation to distance ourselves from Paul and the gospel he preached. I think for us, it comes from a slightly different angle, though. You know, as Paul unpacks the gospel and its implications for the lives of Jesus' followers, every person in every culture is going to hear parts that sound great, and it's going to hear parts that grate against us. And when Paul teaches things that we find uncomfortable or distasteful or maybe even offensive, when Paul explains how things like human sexuality or gender or the roles of women and men at church are shaped by the gospel and reaches conclusions we don't like, that distancing ourselves from Paul is a terrible mistake because his gospel is the authentic gospel, and Paul is the, unauth- is the authorised messenger. And so our vocation, our calling as a, as a church and as Christians is to keep holding on to and proclaiming the gospel, to keep pointing each other, our colleagues, our friends and our relatives, to the Jesus of the gospels, the Jesus who Paul preached, the Jesus of history. Now, it's not to say that Christians and the church can't make mistakes in listening to what Paul says, and it's important that we keep testing our understanding of issues against what Paul does say. 
But we shouldn't be surprised that even when we do look closely, there will be things that Paul says that grate against us. And there will be a very real temptation for us to believe the lie that Paul's gospel is not the real gospel. That Paul shouldn't really be listened to. And so to distance ourselves from him and his message and accept something that aligns more with what we think we want to hear. But distancing ourselves from Paul is a terrible mistake too because like we saw last week, any other gospel is a false gospel that can't save us or free us and will leave us facing God's judgment for sin. But as we've listened to Paul's argument today, we have seen we can be confident that Paul's gospel is God's gospel. Even if we're not called to be apostles like Paul, I think it is a passage that challenges us to consider what it means that it's God's gospel. Because if it is God's gospel, that drastically impacts how we view the world and, and what we value. You know, helping each other to hold firmly onto the gospel as we study the Bible together, as we care for each other in the midst of pain and suffering and remind each other of the hope we have in Jesus, help each other to wrestle carefully with our doubts and concerns, and helping each other to grow in our love of God as we consider all he has done for us in Christ. Those are incredibly precious things. Those are things worth investing in. Hearing stories of Uh, people who have been persuaded, you know, that actually, yeah, Jesus is God's king who died to save me and I need to follow him. Stories of how each other are holding firm in the midst of the challenges and trials of this world. They are reasons to praise and glorify God like the churches in Judea do when they hear of Paul. Because God's power to save people from death is at work in the gospel of his grace. And it is the uh, the gospel that Paul preached. The gospel we have is God's gospel, and that's great reason to give thanks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, that it is your gospel, that we can have hope and assurance of all the freedom and riches and treasures that are ours in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would help us to hold on to the gospel firmly and to encourage others to keep looking to Jesus, that we all might come uh, into your kingdom. Amen.